Thank you for joining us for the Lafayette Church of Christ Sermon Podcast. Please join us each week as we listen to lessons given on Sunday mornings at the Lafayette Church of Christ. And good morning, church. It is uh, good to, to be here with you this morning, and, and I want to welcome you again to uh, worship here at Lafayette. I want to welcome uh, those, those joining us online and anyone uh, visiting with us. Uh, I hope you're doing well this morning, uh, and if, if you're not, and you feel a, a little bit like the, the weather does outside, uh, I'm, I'm still thankful that, that you are here, um, and, and I pray you, you have been um, have been already blessed by our, our time of worship together. I know I have been. I uh, want to thank others that have said some uh, beautiful things this morning, uh, and, I, and I pray you'll continue to be blessed by our, our time together in God's presence. Uh, if you would open up with me to, to Matthew chapter 26, not 27, uh, chapter 26, verse 68, that's where we left off last week, and what we're going to do here in a minute is I want to connect the dots for you between last week's primary passage and and this week's primary passage, since we've, we've already worked through uh, some of the material uh, in between the, those two passages. And then before we dive into the actual scripture this morning, I want, to, I want to pose for you a question that you can be chewing on uh, throughout, throughout this message. And it's this question. What was your role in the events of Good Friday? What was your role? role in the events of Good Friday. And I don't presume this morning that I'm going to provide a definitive answer to, to that question. But what I'm, I'm wanting to do this morning is to provide what I think is one appropriate Christian response to, to that answer of what your role, what my role, what our role was uh, in the events of Good Friday. That as we wrestle and as we continue to wrestle with the roles that other played in the events of Good Friday. We've looked at Peter, we've looked at Judas, we've looked at Caiaphas, we're going to look uh, this morning at the mob, and we're going to look at Pilate. That when we look at all of these characters and the role they played, that in doing so we get a glimpse of ourselves. What was your role in the events of, of Good Friday? So Matthew chapter 26, verse 68, marks the end of, of Matthew's account of Jesus before the, the Sanhedrin. It's early in the morning on, on Friday, or really late uh, Thursday night. There's sort of this preliminary trial we looked at last week, where Jesus is in front of these religious leaders, and Caiaphas ends up getting Jesus to, to blaspheme uh, publicly by invoking the, the prophet Daniel and essentially uh, admitting that he uh, believes himself to be the Messiah, that he believes himself uh, to be the Son of God. So that was the, the scene we, we looked at last week. So if you can kind of track with me here. Then from verses 69 to 75, uh, we, we get our first interlude. And we get the end of, we leave Jesus to the side for a moment, and we get the end of Peter's story, uh, which of course revolves in this section around him denying Jesus three times. And I think I pointed this out last week, but, but again, notice that Peter ends up denying Jesus immediately following this first trial of, of Jesus. And I don't think that timing is coincidental. 
Peter witnesses what happens to Jesus. And, and he witnesses what's probably going to happen to anyone who sticks by Jesus. And it's only at that point that he denies him three times. Now flip over to, to chapter uh, 27, and we're going to get kind of another interlude here. But verse, verse 1 and, and 2 are pretty relevant for our timeline this morning, uh, even though we've, we've technically had this uh, scripture reading already. Uh, verse 1 says, Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. So they bound him, and they led him away, and they handed him over to Pilate, the governor. So there's a little bit of controversy here, but Matthew seems to indicate that there was yet another gathering of, of the religious leaders after the scene we read about in chapter 26, where they really come together and they, they nail down their exact plans. Now that Jesus has blasphemed publicly, they come together, they conspire, and they say, okay, this is, this is how we're going to get Jesus killed. Uh, and step one of that is, is to hand him over uh, to Pilate, the governor. So we get that in verse 2. We're going to pick up the Jesus and Pilate story down in verse 11. So the second interlude here that Matthew gives us, it, <clears throat> excuse me, don't know what just happened there. Uh, <clears throat> there we go. Okay. So the second interlude is the end, not of Peter's story, but the end of, of Judas's story, which we also focused on several weeks ago. So as a reminder, look at verse 3. Uh, when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with, remor- re- with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. And so from, from this little detail, again, I'm just kind of pointing, out this, uh, pointing all this out chronologically now, I think we can conclude that when, when Judas betrayed Jesus initially, he did not actually think that Jesus would end up getting condemned. I, I definitely don't think he, he thought Jesus was, was going to be killed. And so as, as we discussed a little bit, Judas sees what unfolds as a result of, of his actions. He, he's able to see his role in the events of Good Friday. And when he does, he becomes seized with remorse over the, the role that, that he ends up playing in all of this. He is well aware of his own sinfulness, of his own sinful role. He explicitly confesses his sinfulness in this section. And then he at least tries to, to make a partial, uh, or he, he tries to partially right his wrongs by, by giving back the money. But these same religious leaders we've already been reading about pretty much ignore his request. They say, no, that this is not our, our business. And then the end of, of that story is Judas deciding to take his, his own life. And so there's the Peter interlude, and then there's the Judas interlude. And again, I'm just assuming Matthew kind of puts these at particular points for, for reasons. And then it's not until verse 11 that Matthew returns our attention to the, mo- the, the main protagonist in this story named, named Jesus. So our primary text this morning begins in, in verse 11. Uh, and let's go from there. Uh, meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor. The governor is named Pilate. And the governor asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? And uh, Jesus replied, You have said so. And I already want us to to pause right there because Jesus says to Pilate right here exactly what he had said to Caiaphas last week back in in verse 63 of the previous chapter. Uh, Caiaphas had had told Jesus, he said, I charge you under oath 
by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And before Jesus attacks on the Daniel imagery or says anything else, all he says at first is, you have said so. And then here again, now in chapter 27, when this other official, when this uh, political official, the governor, Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? His only response is, you have said so. He doesn't say anything else. And I think the way Matthew frames uh, both of those interactions, uh, it's almost as if Caiaphas, Caiaphas and Pilate are the ones confessing who Jesus is. I don't know if that's how you read that, but that's kind of how this has stood out to me, the way, the way Matthew puts this together. They are the ones declaring who Jesus is. Jesus never says, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Son of God, I'm the King of the Jews. They put those words into his mouth, and Jesus simply affirms, and he says, you have said so. And if that is what Matthew's trying to, to get us to see, I think that's pretty provocative, because we know uh, Caiaphas and Pilate don't actually think that this Jesus is the Messiah. They, they don't actually think that this Jesus is the Son of God or the King of the Jews. All the evidence they have before them seems contrary uh, to, to such lofty claims. But they have their own sort of plans and purposes for, for why they're identifying Jesus with, with those three titles. Uh, Caiaphas, as, as we talked about, was just trying to, to, to trap Jesus into committing blasphemy. So he says, hey, aren't you the Messiah, the Son of of God, and Jesus says, you've said so. And Pilate's trying to just figure out what's going on, and he says, hey, are you really the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, you have said so. He just affirms what, what they are, are saying about him. So initially here in verse 11, he responds to, to, to Pilate, uh, but then he takes a different approach beginning in verse 12. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. And then Pilate asked him, don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Pilate is, is simply amazed by Jesus' silence. He's amazed that someone like Jesus could, could just sit there or stand there and not speak up for himself, not defend himself, not explain away any of these false accusations. Pilate, from the get-go, does not understand this, this man, Jesus. Pilate is a governor, and Jesus claims to be a king, uh, but Pilate, I think, is confused by the person of Jesus. What kind of king, what, what kind of ruler, what kind of authority fails to even speak up for himself? He's amazed by Jesus' silence. Verse 15 now, it was the governor's custom at the festival. Uh, keep in mind, this is all happening over Passover. So, it's the, the secular political official's custom at this religious festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. And a real brief remark here, at this point in the story, we're kind of introduced to what I'm going to portray to you this week and the coming weeks as another character in this narrative that we see. We know about Caiaphas because we have his name. We read about Pilate. We can read about Peter and Judas. But I think the, the crowd functions as kind of a, a, a character, an unnamed group character as, as this story unfolds. So the crowd's going to be important this morning. 
So he, uh, the governor's custom is to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. So who does the crowd want, want us to get rid of? At that time, verse 16, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you? Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Messiah or who is called the Christ? For he knew it was out of self-interest that they handed Jesus over to him. And while Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message, don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. The Gospels of, of Luke and, and John, more than the Gospel of Matthew, give us many more details uh, about this interaction between Jesus and Pilate. So if you feel like you don't hear everything this morning, it's because we're mostly sticking with Matthew, and Matthew just doesn't tell us as much uh, about this interaction with, with uh, Pilate. But what I think Matthew does emphasize in his shorter account is that he, he very clearly emphasizes how well aware Pilate was of Jesus' innocence. Pilate knows, as this is unfolding, that this man named Jesus, the Messiah, standing before him is an innocent man. Verse 18 tells us that Pilate had, had perceived correctly that Jesus wasn't actually guilty of any of these crimes, but that he was there only out of the self-interest of the religious leaders. So Pilate's observing this, going, okay, this guy doesn't seem to have really done anything wrong. This is really more about the religious leaders. And then verse 19 gives us this additional detail that Pilate's wife had a dream specifically about Jesus' innocence and that she had come to Pilate before he passes condemnation one way or another. And she had told him, this is an innocent man and we don't need to have, uh, we don't need to, to have anything to do with condemning this, this man. And so Matthew, I think, highlights Jesus' innocence and he highlights the fact that uh, Pilate is well aware of Jesus' innocence. And his innocence is in stark contrast to the guilt of this other prisoner, this uh, Jesus Barabbas, who uh, we know from one of the other Gospels had committed insurrection and murder, which is like a pretty good, uh, it's like a pretty good one-two punch of guilt, uh, if you're, as far as that goes. Insurrection and murder versus whatever they're accusing Jesus of. Uh, in a few minutes, I'm going to try to convict all of you of your own sinfulness, uh, but I still don't think I'm looking out this morning and going, we got a lot of insurrectionists and murderers, okay? So the contrast here between Barabbas and, and Jesus is, is pretty stark. Uh, and, and yet, uh, as Matthew portrays it, uh, even though Pilate fully knows the, the, dis the disparity between the two, uh, he does not show himself to be a governor who is concerned with justice or righteousness or honesty or truth, uh, these sort of virtues you might uh, expect or hope for in a ruler um, but those things don't factor into the decision too much. And we see that beginning in verse 20. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. So notice this is the religious leaders getting the crowd to do what they, they want. Which of the two do you want me to release to you, asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered, except I, can't, I can only be like so compelling or loud. Uh, I'm imagining that Barabbas is like pretty loud, right? 
They're not just answering that. They're, they're screaming all of these things in a way I'm, I'm not going to scream them this morning. Uh, who do you want me to, re- to release? Barabbas. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? Pilate asked, and they all answered much louder than this, Crucify him. And Pilate says, Why? What, what crime has he committed? But they shouted all, they shouted all the louder, Crucify him. The crowd makes a very clear choice here in favor of the insurrectionist murderer over this innocent, falsely accused teacher from from Galilee. And they don't even try to to justify it. Pilate asks them uh, what crime Jesus could have possibly committed that would make him more deserving of crucifixion than this man Barabbas. And all they do is simply shout what they were already saying. They shout all the louder, Crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. You see, uh, mobs, if you didn't know this, uh, mobs are not uh, particularly known for their sense of justice uh, or their sense of righteousness or honesty or or truth. Uh, You may have learned that about uh, crowds and mobs in our own time and place, uh, and that certainly seems to be the case with this mob, uh, this crowd. This happens with mobs at sports games. You'll see mobs or crowds do things. You'll see my mother at like a basketball game doing things she would never uh, do anywhere else. But, I mean, that woman could say some things during a basketball game, right? So there's some group think that goes on uh, when you're a part of a mob, a crowd even at a sporting event. But with such heightened religious tensions, these people aren't thinking in terms of justice or or righteousness. They're uh, They're just roused up in and uh, going along with what the religious leaders would have, would have them do. And so the hope here, really the only hope for Jesus at this point, is that this governor, who technically is in charge of all this, that this governor would have a sense of righteousness, that he would have a sense of, of uh, justice or peace or honesty or truth that would elevate him above the crowd, that would elevate him above the scheming of, of the religious leaders. And we read about that governor in verse 24. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting. He took water and he washed his hands in front of the crowd. And he said, I am innocent of this man's blood. It is your responsibility. And all the, all the people answered with uh, what I think is one of the most chilling lines in, in Scripture. His blood is on us and on our children. And then Pilate released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. So throughout this series, we have been focusing on uh, a number of of different characters, and and we've kind of teased out the roles that each of them play uh, in the events of Good Friday. And and with a a Peter or a Judas, where we we kind of began with, with those two characters, we looked at their potential human motivations but behind their actions. Uh, and we also recognize that while they were human and they were sinning in these moments, uh, that, that also God had a, a hand to play in these events and that the, the evil one had a hand to play in these events. And the human and the demonic and the divine are all somehow, some way, uh, mysteriously uh, leading to these events unfolding. But again, Peter and Judas are not the only human characters who have a role to play in the story. They're not the only human characters who sin uh, in the Passion narrative. Other characters present 
give us an insight into the nature of, of human sin, and I would say our human sin. Uh, the sin that ultimately certainly put Jesus on the cross, but also the sin that, that Jesus died for on the cross. And so last week, uh, another such character, I, I would say, where we get kind of an, a glimpse into human sin, would, uh, would be a character uh, exemplified among the, the religious elite named Caiaphas. I think in his interaction, Caiaphas uh, and Jesus were able to see something about human sin uh, uniquely through his words and, and his actions. Another such character would be the, the political elite or the political rulers uh, exemplified by, by certainly Pilate and probably also Herod. And another uh, such character would be the mob or it would be the crowd, uh, these, this group of human beings who are, are sinfully crying out for the execution of an innocent man and the release of, of a guilty man. And so Peter and Judas and Caiaphas and Pilate and the mob, each in their own ways, I think reveal to us the, the sinfulness of humanity that ultimately led to the only sinless human being murdered on a cross. And I got this quote for you that I had to read about 35 times before I, I really uh, was able to appreciate it, so you won't be able to fully appreciate it because I'm not going to read it 35 times. Uh, but Judith Jones uh, is, is writing about uh, chapter 27 and, and the way these characters are kind of depicting uh, human sinfulness, and she writes this. This long and multifaceted reading depicts God and human beings at cross purposes, with Jesus at the very middle. The various characters in the narrative provide a vivid portrait of human sinfulness and its consequences. Judas, motivated perhaps by greed, betrays Jesus, but then bitterly regrets his action. The disciples, all of them, as Brett said, but with Peter at the head, long to demonstrate their faithfulness and love, but they fail miserably. Jesus' opponents, the religious leaders, Pilate, the Roman soldiers that we'll get to next week, and the crowds, all in their own ways, reject and torment and ridicule Jesus as they seek their own benefit and their own ends. That's a working definition of sin, as humans working towards their own benefit and their own ends. Jesus alone remains fully obedient to God's will, opening the way for God to defeat humanity's death-dealing choices through the paradoxical power of the cross. I'm assuming you all have that memorized and you've, you've fully processed that. It's, it's, it's really uh, a loaded set of, of sentences. But I, I think her point is that of, of all the human characters depicted in the, in the Bible, uh, but certainly the Gospels and certainly the Passion narrative, uh, there is only one human character who is fully obedient to, to God's will. We can look at all of the other human characters and see some way in which they are out of step with God's will. There's only one human character who is able to open the way for God to defeat humanity's death-dealing choices through the paradoxical power of the cross. And so, uh, you and I may read this story and we may recognize that we were not Judas who betrayed uh, Jesus. And I'm feeling kind of thankful for that. I, I've shared I have sympathy for Judas, but I, I don't want to be in Judas' 
Judas's exact same shoes. That, that would be a scary place to, to be. And I, we can read these stories and we can say, yeah, well, we weren't Peter who denied Jesus three times. We weren't Caiaphas who blasphemed Jesus. We're not a coward like Pilate. We weren't a part of this bloodthirsty mob. But I think there's another way where, where we can read this and recognize that all of us humans, along with all of those humans, have not remained, and I, I would say cannot remain, fully obedient to God's will for humanity. Pilate thinks, in the very end of our scene this morning, Pilate thinks that he can wash away this man's innocent blood, that he can wash away his own sinful complicity in the events of Good Friday by washing his hands in a basin of water. I think we're invited to laugh at that detail in the story, that Pilate has no, <laughs> Pilate has no clue what, what's going on in this moment. And Judas, very sadly, thinks that he can wash away this innocent man's blood, that he can wash away his own sinful complicity in the events of Good Friday by taking his own life. And I don't presume to know exactly uh, what was going on in Peter's mind or Caiaphas's mind or the, the mob's mind, but I think we can say that they all had motivations and they all had their own plans and purposes and goals, and all of those plans and purposes and goals were negatively affected by their own human sinfulness. And so I think the, the spiritual truth at work behind all of these very human characters and their deep and, and collective sinfulness is that it's only through the blood of the innocent man that they are murdering that they can have their sins washed away. And so as we read this passion narrative, and as we do this morning, and as we're going to these, these final few weeks, uh, I think we often want to see ourselves in the passion story as Jesus. Uh, we want to be the good guy in the story. We want to be the hero. We want to be the protagonist. And to be fair, in this series, I have invited you to look at the innocent uh, man Jesus suffering and being falsely accused and mistreated and if you can identify with those experiences, I, I want you to put yourself in his shoes and, and draw comfort and solidarity that when you go through your own suffering and your own trials, uh, that Jesus is, is there with you. So certainly, in, in some way, we can read these stories uh, and we can identify with Jesus and, and see the way he identified with us. But I, I think the reality I, I want us to, to see more so this morning is that we share the same nature of human sin that all of these human characters shared. Uh, I like when someone preaches my message for me earlier because I can say, Brett already said it. Brett already called you guys sinners. Brett already admitted he was a sinner. And I'm going to affirm him and say I'm, I'm looking at a room full of sinners this morning. More than we would like to admit, we can relate to Peter who was driven by fear. And we can relate to Judas who was driven by greed. We can relate maybe a lot of us, to Caiaphas, who was, I would say, driven by self-righteousness. We can relate to the mob who's just driven by their, their lust and violence. We can relate to Pilate, who is a coward and who had this desire for control and power. And so I asked you uh, at the beginning of this encouraging sermon to, to ponder that question 
what was your role in the events of Good Friday? And I think one appropriate Christian response to that question is to admit, and it is, I would say, to confess that my role was akin to the sinful role of Pilate, and that your role was akin to the sinful role of Caiaphas, and that in the stories of Peter and Judas or the mob, we get a glimpse, however ugly, of ourselves. That in their deep collective sinfulness put on display in these stories, that it operates as a mirror um, of our own. That each and every one of us, as members of sinful humanity, are complicit in the events of Good Friday. And that is simply a part of this story of how God became king that we have to account for. It's not the fun part of the, the story. There will be some, some other parts that are a little bit more pick-me-up. Uh, but it is a necessary part of understanding grace. It is a necessary part of understanding God's love for us and God's reward for us one day. Uh, that we have to recognize our, complici- our complicity in sinful humanity. That like Peter, like Judas, like Caiaphas, like the mob, like Herod, like the Roman soldiers, like these bystanders, bystanders doing nothing, we have to admit and, and confess that we are the guilty ones, like they are, in need of pardon from this innocent man. That we, like them, are, are broken by our sinfulness, and we need to be mended. That we, like them, are wounded, and we need to be healed. And so the good news of Jesus Christ, something we call the gospel, acknowledges our deep sense of human sin. In fact, I would say it starts there with our our deep sense of of human sin, our complicity uh, in in these events we're, we're reading about this morning. But it doesn't stop there. The gospel continues, and it declares that only by the blood of this innocent lamb, this innocent man who knew no wrong, it is only by his blood that we can be welcomed back into the arms of God. And so this is the week to focus on our human sin. Uh, But we're we're headed a a different direction in the the upcoming couple of weeks. And as we sing this morning, uh, and as we sing what, what some of you know is one of my favorite songs, I hope we can look at these other characters and identify with them this week and sort of create that distance between them and Jesus. And not say, I'm the good guy in the story, but to say, I'm Pilate, I'm, I'm Caiaphas, and I see in them a little bit of myself, and that helps me recognize my need for God. Jim and Kathy are going to be back in the prayer room. Kathy's doing King's Kids, so they'll both be back there if you don't want to talk to the, pump, the self-proclaimed pumpkin. Um, the, the Zellers will be back there. If you need to pray with them, if you need to confess your sin, Uh, they'll, They'll be back there to do that with you. Let's stand and sing.